Well, hello again, friends. Welcome to our latest episode of In With The Old. As always, I'm Dr. Brian Koning, and today we are answering once again some of your questions. We have three fantastic ones that I'm excited to dig into with my co-host, Dr. Tim. Tim, what's going on? How are you doing today? I am doing excellent, Brian. I'm excited for this episode. We've got some good questions. I'm ready to dive into it. Fantastic. So as always, during these Q&A episodes, we want to put it out there. If you have questions that you want Dr. Tim and I to answer, please send them to us. You can email at us at inwiththeoldpodcast at outlook.com or message us on Facebook or Instagram on our official pages. And hey, while you're there, maybe give it a like and a follow. So Tim, we're going to start off with you and we're going to talk about Samson, a, a character I find fascinating. And I want to ask you one very key question about Samson. Okay. Was he a hero or a villain in the book of Judges? Good question. And this is not an easy one to answer. And and as our audience might suspect, th- there are aspects of Samson's life that are so interesting and compelling, right? I mean, you have a miraculous birth narrative. Some may not know this, that his, his birth was mm-hmm. miraculously foretold. Uh, he's a Nazarite from the womb. In other words, someone who's set apart for the service of God in the womb. Over and over, the text says that the Spirit of God falls on him. Uh, But of course, Samson's role in the story of Judges is that he is a judge, right? He is a military deliverer. In fact, in one sense, he's the greatest military deliverer because he's a one-man army. Uh, he's given the strength to pursue his enemies, and there's there's all kinds of these stories of how he kills thousands with the jawbone of a donkey, and he ties the tails of foxes together and sets fire to the fields of his enemies. And of course, the intrigue of Samson is, is not just his strength, but also his weakness, uh, namely for women and namely for women who aren't Israelite women. And uh, and so in, in one sense, as we look at Samson's life, there are certain things that he does that we can look at and say, well, he did deliver the people of God from their enemies. So in that sense, we could say that's heroic or he's a hero. Uh, in another sense, he betrays the people of God by marrying outside of his people. Uh, and of course, he ends up falling into foolishness in terms of ultimately giving his secret away to Delilah. And so here's, here's what I hope we can do, Brian, and, and you can help us with this in just a second. I hope what we can do is is to shed sort of the 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 Hollywood image of Samson as this sort of tanned and muscled, you know, kind of uh, hero hunk that uh, it has this romance that kind of buds with Delilah. Like when we think of Samson, really, I, I think Samson is a, a picture perfect tragic figure in the scriptures. And here's what I mean by that. You know, we, we talked last episode about this idea in the book of, of uh, Judges in particular, that this was a period of time that the Bible says every man did what was right in his own eyes. And of course, the irony is that Samson allowed his eyes to lead him astray. And in that sense, he wasn't abnormal. He was a man of his times, but that's really the point. There, there were times that God used him in spite of himself that the Spirit of God came on him and, and used Samson to deliver his people. But at the end of the day, 
uh, Samson dies in, in one sense a valiant death. And, and what does it say? That in his death he killed more Philistines than even in his life. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there seems to have been a, a humbling after his eyes are gouged out, after he's captured, and, and after he, he in one sense comes to his senses. There's a humbling uh, final scene in Samson's life. Uh, but really it's a tragedy as, as we come to that, that we see the folly of this man uh, and yet still, well, there's a comfort, right, that even one of the most broken men is still used by God uh, in order to accomplish God's purposes. Now, if it weren't really for Hebrews chapter 11, where Samson is included in the Hall of Faith, uh, I would <laughs> yeah. question whether there's much redemption in the story. But I think that Hebrews 11 at least gives us a hint that, that when it comes to his life, uh, there, it, it's not a life that is totally and completely wasted. I think in the end, Samson comes to realize his own folly, and because of that, uh, in the end, his, his life does—it's it, not completely wasted, but his life ultimately uh, can be seen as, as redeemed in some sense. And so, did he operate by faith? At times he did, and in the end, I think he did. But of course, the, the tragedy is that he never should have been between those pillars in the captivity mm-hmm. of his enemies— uh, it was because he did what was right in his own eyes that he was led to that tragic end. Uh, and so as we think hero, villain, I think maybe the best answer is he's a human and a human who did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah, that's really well put, Tim, because I think, is he a hero? Is he a villain? The answer is either yes or neither. Um, a, a phrase I often use with my students is you need to get comfortable and used to complex people, complex heroes, complex villains, because Hollywood isn't real life. All of us are broken sinners, capable of great and wondrous things to be used by God and capable of despicable sin. And those are not mutually exclusive even in the life of an individual. And I think Samson is that exemplar of both. He is a judge used by God to deliver his people. He is also, I really like how you put it, a man of his times. When Samson sees Delilah, I mean, the text is quite explicit He says to his dad, go get her for me because she looks right in my eyes. The key phrase of judges that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And Samson does that and gets his wife. And that leads to his death. And I, 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 it's not accidental, is it, Tim, that he's in this situation because he chose something that was right in his own eyes and he loses his eyes. And it's only then that he sees the plan of God and says, all right. I'm going to pay for it. There's a consequence to my sin, and it's my death, but please still use me. Um, and so, yeah, Hebrews, I think, clues us in that there's a redemption here. Um, he dies valiantly, but that's not a death any of us should have wished for, right? Because he shouldn't have even been there. Right. He's making the best of a bad situation at that point. So, yeah, he, Samson's a great encapsulation of, of us needing to challenge kind of how we approach simplistic views of people. Because um, he doesn't neatly fit into either category, as you said, he's human. Well, and Brian, I'm I'm so glad you brought up that point because it it is fascinating that he only could see after his eyes were gouged out, and uh, it was his eyes that led him astray. At which point, once he lost those, he could see as God saw in one sense. Um, and and just to to make a, another quick note, you know, Brian, it's interesting. Because Hollywood likes a certain version of Bible stories, um, but at the same time, 
we, we have to be careful. You know, when it comes to depictions of biblical stories, I, I actually tend to like watching them, but not because I think they're helpful in, in the sense of being accurate, but actually because they can sometimes send us back to see what the text actually says. Um, mm, yeah. There's a, there's a, a theater in uh, Branson, Missouri, which is near where I live. And, Branson. Uh, and, Branson, yeah. Have you ever been to Branson, Brian? I have not been to Branson. Okay, okay. Well, if you ever come see me in Lebanon, maybe I'll take you. But there's a, a theater there in Branson where they have major dramatic uh, biblical stories on stage, and it's and it's really well done. There's a lot of animals and in, in different scenes, and and they try to they try to do it well, and it's a good production. But what's interesting is they almost inevitably try to over romanticize uh, relationships mm. in the Bible. For instance, between say Esther and uh, Esther and Hazarus, and and you know this idea that man there was this blooming romance, and we're going to kind of and it's like, well, wait a second, you know, I, I think it's easy to to kind of paint with a Hollywood brush these stories in Scripture uh, that aren't meant to follow sort of the tropes that we're used to. So it's just kind of a, a viewer warning as you consider these things. Make sure that you go back and you read the biblical text. Uh, it kind of breaks the mold of what we think is a good story, but that's exactly as Brian said. That's exactly the point. Brian, we've considered Samson. Uh, now we're going to ask a question, and this may be the most difficult question in one sense. Uh, it's an ethical question that we that we're going to consider, and I'm going to kick it to you. Does God commend lying in the Old Testament? And I'm thinking in particular of an example in Exodus 1, right? You have the mm -hmm. uh, Hebrew midwives who are commanded by Pharaoh to throw the Hebrew boys in the Nile River. And, uh, and essentially, they make up a total lie, right? When, uh, when, he, uh, or when the Pharaoh says, well, why are all of these Hebrew boys surviving? They very famously say, uh, well, it's because the Hebrew women are more hardy than the Egyptian women. We can't, we can't even get there in time to you know, get the boys as they're coming out, so to speak. They just shoot those babies right out. They shoot them right out, and they're there before we get there, at which point, hey, we're out of luck. And, and the, but the most interesting part of the story is, is that it says that God blessed those women uh, with children of their own as a result mm -hmm. of this. And so, Brian, how do, we, how do we understand this? Does God commend lying in Exodus 1, and how do we understand this, this phenomenon throughout the Old Testament? Yeah, this is a great question and a great dilemma for us to consider, because it's clear if we look at the whole counsel of Scripture, God is a God of truth. Lies come from the devil, right? He's... When he lies, he's speaking his native tongue. He's a father of lies from the beginning. Um, and, and then we come to Exodus 1 and we go, wait, this is an odd story. So Tim gave us some of the context, right? We're at the beginning of Exodus. We're several hundred years after the time of Joseph. The Israelites have gone from being very favored guests in the land of Egypt to slaves. And there's some historical reasons, right? The invasion of the Hyksos. Um, but for whatever reason, right, they are now being oppressed and the Egyptians are afraid of how numerous they're becoming. And so I actually wanted to read the verses. So if you have a Bible or want to just listen to us, we're in Exodus chapter 1. We'll start in verse 16. Uh, Pharaoh says, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill them. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commended them. But let the male children live. 
So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And so here's where the ethical dilemma comes in. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before we get to them. So God dealt well with them, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So the challenge is, right, they're like, hey, they just lied to Pharaoh. <laughs> um, and yet God seems to bless them. Well, how do we handle that? I think we handle this first by recognizing this is a horrible dilemma that these midwives mm-hmm. are pressed into, right? Their yeah. choice is not implicit. It's not up to the vagaries of interpretation and subtext. Pharaoh says, if it's a boy, he dies. Their choice is to tell Pharaoh the truth or kill people, right? Mm-hmm. That That's, I, I don't want to make it a false dichotomy, but there aren't many options here for these midwives. So they choose to lie. One possible way to resolve this, and I'm not going to go down this route, but I would encourage everyone to go look at the story. We don't actually know explicitly that this is a lie. It really feels like it, but the text does not actually say that they are lying when they tell Pharaoh that the Hebrew women are vigorous, as the text says. Now, is that a fair implication that they're lying? Probably. But let's be clear, it also does not claim that. So maybe there's a way out there. I'm not going to take that, though. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, they are straight up lying to Pharaoh. Well, how do we deal with that? Well, we deal with that by recognizing what they're praised for. The text says they are praised for fearing God. It does not say that they are praised for lying. They are praised for fearing God. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. He blessed them because they cared for him. And so this is an important point for us all to consider. When we think of God's law operating in a broken world, Is it possible that you can be in a situation for which there is no sinless option? And I think the answer is yes. This is a broken world. We can have a conflict of priorities in the law. In this case, life and truthfulness. Which one trumps the other one? I think they were put in a no-win situation in terms of like a sinless option. I don't think there was a way out. They chose to preserve life. They made the choice that preserving life is a higher good. And there's some precedents for this as well, right? Jesus, mm. when he is gleaning from the field, which is against the law, right? The, the Pharisees come and go, hey, why are you doing that? You're breaking the law. And he says, hey, don't you remember in the Old Testament that David and his men were starving and they came in and ate the showbread, bread that was not lawful for them to eat? What David did was right. He preserved life. That mm. is a overriding aspect of God. God is a God of life. Part of what I want to look at here is God did not commend them for lying. Mm. It might be the choice that was right because they are seeking to preserve life. And because of that, they are trusting and fearing in God. And so that is what they are praised for. There may not have been an other option. Another way you could take this, again, this is a, a possibility I've seen floated out there. I don't know if I go here. But you could say from a authority position, God places people in authority, right? God is sovereign over those things with the implication that they are to be faithful to him. When they are no longer doing that, when they are in violation of his natural law, as it were, they have forfeited the right to expect obeisance from their people. In that 
vain than the Pharaoh of Egypt has forfeited the right as he is seeking to kill people unlawfully and unjustly. He has forfeited the right to expect truth. Um, yeah. That maybe gets into more like philosophical and ethical debates. Uh, I think it's an interesting idea. I don't know if I want to go there. The big point I do want to point out to our readers, God is not saying you lied and that was a good job. He says, you feared me. Mm-hmm. Whatever choice you made to do that, you feared me. You trusted in me. That is what they are blessed for. Um, so this, I think, pushes us, Tim, as we've said a couple times, the Bible deals with reality. There are sometimes going to be principles that are put into conflict. We aren't given nice, clear, black and white responses sometimes. Sometimes they are gray. And the yeah. key is going to be seeking after God with whole hearts and trying to make the best of it sometimes. So that's how I'm going to wrestle through this difficult question. Tim, what are your what are your thoughts? As a pastor, I'm, I'm really interested to hear how you'd approach this. No, that, that I, I think you really answered it well, Brian. You know, it is a broken world. And, and I love how you said, sometimes there might not be a sinless choice, or we could say it like this, uh, even if we took the category of sin away from it, sometimes we have to choose between a bad option and a really bad option. Yes. Um, and, and I think this is one of the ways that the Old Testament is still useful, because what the Old Testament does is it, it helps us to shape the ways that we think ethically um, in, in ways that go beyond simple kind of you know, maxims, like the, there are decisions like this that, that people have to face. You know, uh, I read a book recently, The Hiding Place by Corey Tinboom, and uh, it was a yeah. similar scenario, right? They're hiding Jewish people, and uh, the sister basically said, I cannot tell a, a lie in any way of any kind. And in the end, she ended up giving giving up that there were Jewish people in her home because she was directly asked. And, uh, and she said, I can't tell a lie. I've just got to trust them to the Lord. Whereas uh, Corey Ten Boom argued uh, essentially what you did, that basically whenever someone is committing an abject evil and is living in rebellion against God, that they have forfeited the right uh, to be told the truth. Um, and either of those options, I, I think, are, are true and good. You know, to me, I, I think you just so nailed it, that, that, that the key to this text, and it's why it's repeated, right, is that they feared the Lord, they feared the Lord, and of course, the Lord, they knew, is a God who told them, be fruitful and multiply, and even setting it in the context of redemptive history, right? Uh, if the boys of Israel are killed, well, then it's, it's going to be difficult to multiply as, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So uh, they understood in one sense that there was a greater loyalty that they had to God rather than Pharaoh, and that's a theme that we see throughout Scripture, right? The, the apostles say before the Sanhedrin, is it right to obey uh, men or is it right to obey God? Uh, Paul, for instance, even in the book of Acts, yeah. he, he says, yeah, exactly. if I've done anything worthy of death, then I'm willing to die. Uh, he recognizes earthly authority as true and real and right, but he also recognizes that there are times whenever our loyalty to God may lead to death, uh, at which point part of God's protection in this sense was, was probably that Pharaoh didn't find out that they were lying. And or or mm-hmm. as you said, maybe it was something where uh, you know there's a plausible deniability. Maybe they uh, helped with the pre-birth, and then the the women gave birth, and they went and did something else. And and we don't know, and the Bible doesn't tell us. But the point is, their fear of God drove them, and I think you you explained that really well. And the the last thing I would just want to mention here 
is this is also a question that is probably hard to answer thinking of it from a air conditioned room in a place where I am not in fear of my life. I'm not in fear of the lives of my kids. Right. Um, there are some situations where I go, I don't, I don't think we have the right to Monday morning quarterback it. Um, being in that moment, like I I was thinking of the hiding place as well, because it's a, a very analogous situation. Right. Um, in these situations, we need to be going, God, I want to obey you and have your spirit, right? Point me to what I need to do. And yeah. that's that's going to be the correct action, whatever that action is in any given situation. Um, and I want to recognize that we as modern readers are in a much safer place, and it can be very easy to pick apart the choices of others in a horrifying situation. Um, and I don't think we necessarily have the right to do that. So, yeah. Yeah, a very good question, though, the person that sent this in. Thank you for having us discuss this. Okay, well, Brian, we've got one more question, and uh, and we're going to let you take first swing at this. And this is something uh, that I think is going to be uh, important for our readers. Um, the question is is simply this. Do you have to know Hebrew to truly understand the Old Testament? And I guess we could add to that, Greek to understand the New Testament? Do you have to understand the original language in order to understand the scriptures? It's a great question, and we could spend some time trying to pick apart by what do we mean by truly understand. But I'll just start with a very simple answer. No. Knowledge of Hebrew is not some magical formula that like, ah, I've now found the deeper and (laughs) hidden and uh, esoteric knowledge of God's word. Knowing Hebrew doesn't make you a better Christian. It doesn't usher you into some closely guarded cabal of knowledge. Uh, That, Tim, as you are well aware, is Gnosticism. That's a heresy that the church has dealt with from time to time. No, so Hebrew isn't necessary to truly understand the Old Testament. So what is it necessary for? Well, what a knowledge of language does, be it Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, it gives us uh, a way to see the depth of, the nuance and the complexity that is often at play and lost. So any of our listeners who are bilingual will know this already, but no two languages are identical. Uh, you, Anytime you translate from a target language to a receptor language, you lose some nuance simply because they aren't one-for-one one, uh, analogous. So when you or I read the Old Testament English, we are reading a very good approximation of what the Hebrew says. Our Mm -hmm. English translations today are the products of brilliant men and women who have been doing this for for decades, for centuries, depending on your tradition, right? Uh, We have excellent translations that communicate the best they can. But best doesn't mean perfect. There's always going to be a little bit more. And and maybe to, to help our listeners as an analogy, I like listening to experts talk about their field. Whatever field that is, I like listening to uh, former players as commentary people in the booth, whether it's football or or baseball. I I like listening to art critics talk about art. Why? Well, I can understand art even though I don't have an art degree. I can understand baseball even though I've never played baseball. But when I hear an expert talk, and I even have like an image in my head, it was uh, A-Rod. Former baseball player, I'm not a huge baseball fan, I follow it from time to time, but I know he was a big star, came into the the broadcast booth for the World Series a few years back, and I remember listening to him talk about pitches, talk about batters and the things that are going on, and Mm -hmm. I was blown away 
as someone who doesn't play baseball, at how much you don't see, at how many thoughts and ideas, things that they're trying to pick up on, study between the pitcher and the batter, trying to do this kind of cat and mouse game. And mm-hmm. I was like, there is so much I don't understand because I'm not an expert. That's where a knowledge of language comes in because there is so much that is going on just beneath the surface. Um, and, and so by knowing the language, you can then appreciate all the things that are kind of going and working, the images, the metaphors. So do you need to know Hebrew to truly understand the Old Testament? No. Does it help help you appreciate the depth of everything God is communicating to us? Yes. So that's how I'd phrase it. Tim, how would you phrase it? Yeah, I I really agree with you, Brian. Uh, When it comes to any biblical language, first, it, it's a humbling reality. And and we talked about this uh, a couple of episodes ago when we talk about the Tower of Babel and learning languages and the frustration of it. I mean, it's a humbling process to recognize that the Bible is not written in English, uh, but it's it's given to us and, and translated for us. Uh, and there's a lot of work that goes into that that we can appreciate. Uh, but the hard work of learning a language is difficult. It does take time. It does take energy. Uh, and I don't think it's necessary to understand. I would also just add, if you have an opportunity, and I know, Brian, you would agree with this too, if you have an opportunity to learn the biblical languages, avail yourself of that opportunity. Um, Absolutely. It, it, it's something that I have never heard anyone who has uh, you know, sacrificed what it takes to learn those languages, I've never heard anyone say, you know what? At the end of the day, that was just a waste of time, and and I probably didn't need to. Um, I've never heard anyone say that, and here's why. It's not because, as Brian said, you're looking at something different, but you're looking at the same thing differently. Um, I had a professor one time who said it's the difference between watching a TV show in black and white and watching it in HD color. Um, that may be a little bit too far, but I, I think of it every time I walk into say Sam's club and you see the new 4k or 8k TV that, you know, there are degrees of clarity, uh, that we're achieving when it comes to screens. Well, I think that's, that's another helpful analogy in addition to the one Brian gave. There are levels of clarity that can come, or uh, there are ways that you can uh, you can approach the text with maybe a higher degree of confidence. Uh, Brian, I'm sure this has happened to you as it has to me. I've heard people, you know, claim to use the original languages to make all kinds of arguments that honestly are are total baloney, and uh, it's frustrating because uh, for people who may not have the 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 resources or understanding to see through that. Oh well, this person says this Greek word or this Hebrew word means this, and it has some kind of you know it, it changes the meaning completely. Well, there there are some cases where it can be helpful, but in a lot of cases, the value of it is being able to look at bad arguments and be able to say, you know what, uh, that might sound good or it might be a good selling point, uh, but at the end of the day, it might lead you astray. That's a really good point because a knowledge of the languages will help make you bad argument proof because I think both Greek and Hebrew, maybe Hebrew a little bit more is prone to people trying to take the language to twist it into some sort of, there's a secret message, there's secret knowledge here and a a awareness of how language works and what's going on will make you go, nah, that's not really what's there. And it will help you filter out some of those bad ideas that get floated out there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we think about the blessing of our translations, we truly are blessed. Uh, we have, as one person said, we have an embarrassment of riches. And the good, the good news is uh, there's value, right? Even into, in comparing English translations, because that, that really can be helpful in, in getting at uh, some of the, the questions of translations and some of the differences, and, and it really will help you go deeper. Um, but my advice to anyone would be, uh, if you have an opportunity, take, take it and, uh, and, and get all of the learning you can, not because it, it's going to fundamentally change anything, but to me, Brian, I, I actually love it because even reading Hebrew, what it does for me is, is it gives me the sense of reading it for the first time again. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it takes me back to the thought of, okay, instead of just the words glancing in front of my eyes, I have to, to, to go to a mental place where it's like, okay, what does it say? And, and you have to, in one sense, fight for every word. Um, and it's the same thing with the New Testament. You know, when you're reading it, Jesus is the light of the, oh, Jesus is the light of the world. And you, and you in one sense, mm-hmm. have to squeeze every drop out of every word, as opposed to in English, you, you, you could read that sentence, and it just wouldn't have the same impact, not because it's poorly translated, but because we have to fight for it. And, uh, and, and that's, that's what I love about uh, reading the Bible in the original languages. It's not, as you said, that there's some divine light that shines down from heaven, uh, it's that it really does it really does hit us in a different way, or at least it does for me. Yeah, it's a tool for the toolbox. And the more tools yeah. that we put into our lives as we invest time and energy studying God's Word, trying to learn it, the more tools we have are the more tools that the Holy Spirit can use to shape us, to shape those around us. It doesn't guarantee that we're going to become better, but it allows us to potentially do more. So I'm right there with Dr. Tim, listeners. If you ever have the opportunity to learn Hebrew, to learn Greek, avail yourself of it uh, because it will be well worth it. So this is the end of this Q&A episode. Thank you for those that sent in these questions. They were excellent. Hopefully you've had fun listening to us dialogue about it. If you have or if you haven't, hey, let us know what you think of this Q&A format. We've done now three of these episodes. Send us your feedback at in with the old podcast at outlook.com. And coming up soon, Dr. Tim, we have a fun new series kicking <laughs> off. Our teaser trailer for it will be released sometime this week. So keep your eye out for that. And in the meantime, stay cool and stay old.